Jones. Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. On the 22nd of January 1918, there was a shootout in Gresson Street in Wan Chai, in which police officers and several members of a gang of robbers were killed. One of those police officers was the great uncle of British music teacher, now author, Patricia O'Sullivan, whose quest to find out more about the late Uncle Mort and her grandfather Patrick led her to discover that a number of police officers over decades came to Hong Kong from one town in Ireland. We'll hear more about the Gresson Street affray in 1918 next week, but this week Patricia O'Sullivan tells me about police corruption, a couple of murders and a young lady with a fetish for stationery. Patricia's book, Policing Hong Kong, an Irish history, Irishman in the Hong Kong Police Force, 1864 to 1950, also shows what life was like for working class Europeans in Hong Kong and their families. Patricia starts by explaining what first sparked her interest. I was sent on a mission by my aunt, who was then 90, to find out about what had happened to her uncle because her parents, being Victorians, literally being Victorians, had never told them about the death of Mert, Uncle Mortimer, in Wan Chai in 1918. So, yes, I was told to find out and report back to her. I did, at a very much greater extent and length than she ever (laughs) expected. And bless her, in the end, I mean, after about five minutes, she'd had enough. Thank you very much, Patricia. That'll do for the moment. (laughs) Effectively, this book is the outcome of that first inquiry. The thing is, I found it wasn't just Great Uncle Mert and my Auntie Anne's father, Patrick O'Sullivan, my grandfather, who were both inspectors in Hong Kong, from the end of the 19th century through the first two decades of the 20th, but a whole raft of men who came from their little town in in North County Cork in Ireland. And the town was called? The town's called Newmarket. It's a small town near a larger town people might just have heard of is Mallow, but it's about 40 miles inland and north of Cork City. It had at the time about 1,000 to 1,500 residents. At one point, there's 13 men in the Hong Kong police force at the same time from there. And eventually, the community that's built up in Hong Kong, say around 1910, 1915, probably has about 100 people in it. So how come you've got 13 men from Newmarket who land up in Hong Kong? Two men originally start out by going to Hong Kong. One in 1864, he's trying to cash in on the gold rush, finds out the gold rush has already happened and goes down to Hong Kong instead. The other one, about 10 years later, has landed in the Metropolitan Police in London. He sees an advert for Hong Kong, thinks this might be a bit of a wheeze, so comes over to Hong (laughs) Kong uh, in, in the 1873 London Met intake. From those two men, it's they recruiting their nephews, their cousins, their in-laws and subsequent generations of that 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 we get so many men. Nepotism in the Hong Kong police force? Uh, Well, yeah. (laughs) Benign, I like to think. (laughs) So, yes, you've got these... So, quite an Irish contingent who are part of the Hong Kong police force. When they were coming over in those decades, in the latter half of the 19th century... What awaited them in Hong Kong? What did it mean to be a police officer in those days? 
In some ways, it was very similar for the man who came from the Met. It, the job was quite similar in some respects. In other respects, it was a pretty enormous culture shock. I have to remember that if a policeman had been working in London, in the centre of London, he would have hardly seen any foreign people at all. It's only the people down working near the docks who would have seen different nationalities. So, yeah, that first of all, they are in a multiracial force, and that's that's new for them. Yeah, but how multiracial was it? Well, it's, it yes, it has Indians, Sikhs, West Indians, Chinese, and Europeans. Europeans meaning not just British, but predominantly British. Uh, of course, it might be multiracial, but doesn't that doesn't mean to say there's any equality whatsoever? So how did, how did that work? So you had Europeans at the top who were the officers? So a, a European constable would be senior to even a sergeant, a Chinese sergeant. Not that there were very many uh, sergeant posts available for the Chinese. The Indians were paid more than the Chinese. The Chinese were paid about one-third of the European salary, one-quarter to one-third. The Indians were paid one-third to one-half the European salary. As you say, no equality at all. What were some of the crimes in... Give me some of the crimes in those early years. In 1897, it's the Wa Lane scandal. What was that? Wa Lane scandal was when a whole group of policemen from all the contingents were found to be taking bribes from a very, very well-organised gambling syndicate. That was quite a turning point in the police force because... In the end, about 25% of the police force were found to be implicated and were, in the case of the Chinese, those who hadn't already fled, and many did, were summarily dismissed. Of the Indian force, majority were dismissed. A few were allowed to retire. Only one man retained his pension. Of the European force, the European force were generally given the benefit of at least some, some inquiry. Only they were, really. One man, Job Witchell, was tried because the intermediary who'd been apparently giving him the bribes was found. He was tried and sentenced to six months in Victoria Jail. The other men, which included inspectors but also sergeants and constables, were generally either not permitted to re-enlist or compulsorily retired. China Mail, 14th of July, 1897. Sensational police scandal, suspension of officers. It has been currently rumoured that in the course of the examination of the house at number 2 Wa Lane, which was entered on scandal, suspension of officers. It has been currently rumoured that in the course of the examination of the house at number 2 Wa Lane, and acting Chief Inspector Mackay on June the 21st, a book was discovered which purported to show that certain police officers were in receipt of bribes from the keepers of the gambling house. As a sequel to this discovery, we learn on inquiry that yesterday, Captain Superintendent May, acting under authority from His Excellency the Governor, suspended the following officers for gross neglect of duty, pending further inquiries. Detective Inspector Stanton, Detective Inspector Quincy and Detective Sergeant Holt. Two Chinese detectives have also been arrested under banishment warrants and we learn that several other Chinese are under arrest. We believe that Inspector Stanton has been transferred to Stanley Police Station and Detective Sergeant Holt to Shao Kei Wan Police Station for the time being. Was this so? I mean, when you look back at the Warlane scandal in 1897, I mean, your book goes up until the 1950s, but are there comparisons to the sort of clean-up by the ICAC in the 70s, do you think? Well, there's a bit of an interesting backstory that doesn't often make people's understanding of Wale and those people who've heard of it, because 
some four years earlier, of course, it's the middle of the plague in 1894, and there's a great exodus from Hong Kong. That leaves properties down all over, but particularly Taiping Shan and the area between Taiping Shan and the the harbour, completely bereft of occupants. As soon as the worst of the plague was over, it seems that a syndicate moved in around Walain, East Street, and started creating for themselves a nice little network of tunnels, getaway routes, connections between one house and the next, so that you could go in at you know, sort of number six Walain and come in out at number 12 of the street behind it without any real effort. Because trade sort of collapsed in the time of the plague, the syndicate could then employ men very, very cheaply to be watchmen for them. Towards the latter part of 1894, the newly pr- promoted acting Inspector Baker kept on having suspicions of gambling and he would get a warrant for the arrest, he would have the warrant, but then he realised that as soon as he moved out of Central Station, he was watched and he'd turn up at a particular place and there would be no evidence of gambling whatsoever. But he knew in his heart that, you know, just half an hour ago, everybody had been playing at the dice. Eventually he worked out what exactly was going on. There was a little flurry of slightly more successful warrants, resulting in seven men being given fines. This all came to the attention of the magistrate and his boss, um, Captain Superintendent Henry May, who took uh, some interest in it, and there was a paper written about it and they tried to stop it and was generally thought to be dying down you know there was there was little little going on i think actually just the syndicate just sort of quietened down their activities a little bit henry may then went on leave and he had a a long leave considerably over a year because he was recruiting in britain in in scotland and ireland and in england and commander hastings took over commander hastings didn't perhaps quite have his finger on the pulse of things. Uh, Certainly I don't think Henry May had and I believe that that's really when the gambling all really sort of became embedded because it was such a cross the board coverage of the police force apparently I say apparently because actually we can't really have any evidence with the exception of the Joe Burchill case that it seems to run too deep to be established just in a matter of weeks or months. So that was the Warlane scandal. Um, that was in 1897. Now give me a couple of murders. Alright, well there's um, a couple of murders that my grandfather's cousin, Edmund O'Sullivan when he was quite a, really quite a young detective quite a young policeman. He'd been five years in the force and his, his abilities as a, as a detective had been noted. So he'd just come back on after his first leave and he was put in charge of the investigation of the murder of Yong Kye Wan. Yong Kye Wan was a reformer. He was a Republican. He worked with Sun Yat-sen, slightly different agenda, but basically working to overthrow the Qing dynasty. And although he was born in China, he was a sort of Hong Kong-educated young man. And by this time, he is running an evening school for men and boys in English. And the acting viceroy of Canton had put a a price of $20,000 on his head. And a group of gunmen had been recruited to kill Yong and promised rewards should they be successful. So behind this, you know, you've got the Qing dynasty, obviously, which finally gets overthrown in the revolution of 1911. Sun Yat-sen, fellow revolutionaries in Hong Kong, 
coming in from the Qing dynasty in China as opposed to in British colonial Hong Kong is basically, we're going to assassinate this chap. That's right. He was assassinated in 1901 and Edmund O'Sullivan managed to put together the trail of events. It took him 27 months to do so because, of course, he found that although... Apparently, the whole plan had been very well known in Yamate and Kowloon in general. It had not got to the ears of the authorities. It had been very well known because the first man who was recruited to organise the killing had had great problems persuading anybody in Yamate to join him. It was felt to be too risky on British territory. So he made lots of discreet inquiries. It was then organised that uh, Henry May, who was still at that point the head of the police force, would send a letter to the gunmen who were by that time back in Canton and had received their rewards and had all become fifth-class mandarins. So they received a letter from, or a couple of letters from Mr May, trying to goad them into coming back to Hong Kong. It was when one such letter was discovered by the Qing Dynasty officials in Canton that that gunman was summarily beheaded because, of course, it was evident to the officials there that the whole chain of command, which, of course, went up to the Dowager Empress, had actually been revealed to the British authorities. Two of the men had disappeared. One man was beheaded. Two of the men just disappeared completely. But the leader of the gang, Lao Choi, seems to have taken the bait that May put out and did come back to Hong Kong, where O'Sullivan was able to arrest him. He was to the magistracy, then to the Supreme Court and tried and it took them took the jury just 10 minutes to convict him. He was convicted on being concerned with the murder of Jung and that was enough for him to receive the death sentence. And what would a death sentence have been in those days? The death sentence was hanging. And where would it have been carried out here? Was it just in the courtyard of like Central Police Station? or It would be carried out in a part of the Victoria Jail. So So inside? Yes, inside. By this time, hangings are not public. But stocks were still public? Stocks were. Stocks were less used by the end of the 19th century. They are a feature of the earlier part of the 19th century. So that was the murder of the revolutionary Young Khoi Wan. But you've also got the murder of Gertrude Dayton. That's right. That was another one that of uh, a case that Edmund had to investigate. Now, Gertrude Dayton was a rather glamorous, five foot eight brunette, but it could change colour for the according to the seasons. Uh, chanteuse singer, in other words, a nightclub singer. She had a rich contralto voice. It was said her body was discovered in a trunk in a suitcase by which time it was decomposing and gently oozing in the luggage room of a steamer that was heading off up the South China coast. The China Mail, Thursday, August the 8th, 1907. A ghastly crime. European woman murdered. Body found in a box on a steamer. One of the most ghastly and brutal crimes that has occurred within the limits of the colony of Hong Kong was brought to light yesterday afternoon by the discovery of the body of a European woman in a truck on board the CPR steamer Monteagle. The murder, for all the circumstances point to a most dastardly and foul deed having been committed, was discovered by the carpenter on board the vessel. Erasmus Lawson, for that's the carpenter's name, noticed a peculiar stench proceeding from one of the boxes in the baggage room of the steamer. On making a closer examination, he saw that a dark fluid resembling blood was oozing from the box. 
Well, the first that was known about this was when the, the seaman who was in charge of the luggage compartment on a steamer opened the door to put some more boxes in and sort of reeled with a stench that was coming. I mean, Hong Kong was a pretty smelly place anyhow in those days, but this was particularly bad. He quickly realised where it was coming from. He got his purser down because he wasn't going to touch it, thank you very much. He got the purser down. The purser didn't like the look of it, so called the police and Sergeant Watt had the rather nasty task of breaking open the lock and um, opening it up found a woman's body which was so compressed. This trunk is about 90 centimetres long by 60 centimetres square. The body of quite a tall woman was so compressed into that you couldn't actually see her face. None of those present was prepared for the sight that met their eyes. There was the body of a woman. She was dead and her body was partially decomposed. Round her throat was a piece of calico tied tightly. There was little except the shape of the body to indicate that it was a human form, for decomposition had set in and had swollen the corpse so much that identification was a matter of impossibility. The band round the neck was tightened by an improvised tourniquet, a hairbrush being used to twist the band tight. It went along, it was taken along a course to the mortuary where the colonial surgeon had quite a lot of difficulty removing it from the trunk and it was found to be the body of a woman in her mid-thirties, Gertrude Dayton as it turned out, who had been garroted about three or four days earlier. Eventually the murder was laid at the feet, as it were, of one William Adsitz. Now, Gertrude Dayton is an American woman, she comes from Ohio, William Adsitz had been um, a U.S. Marine and he'd been part of the Tianjin Legation Guard. But he'd not very long ago left that career to pursue his other passion, which was prize fighting. However, when he wasn't winning fights, he was also quite good at um, extracting money from gullible women because he was blonde-haired, blue-eyed and flashy gold, gold-filled teeth, which apparently were attractive in those days. William Hall Adsets had met Gertrude Dayton in, in the Philippines, in Manila, and they'd come to Hong Kong together. And they were quite a stormy couple. They hadn't probably known each other very long. They'd taken a room in the Hong Kong Hotel. One night, it turned out, and this is all from the, what would later be discovered by Edmund O'Sullivan, who was put in charge of the case, still a detective sergeant. They'd gone out uh, on the town, down to, down to Hollywood Road, landed up in a brothel down there where they'd drunk quite a, a large quantity of champagne, very cheap champagne, back to the room where it seems that Adsit's murdered Dayton, probably for her money and her jewellery, because she had, as a nightclub singer and also a fraudster really, had extracted quite a lot of money from another woman in Manila. Hall made his getaway whilst uh, the body of his victim was still mouldering in the, the trunk. The newspapers picked it up and had a whale of time with the story. So much so that every blonde man in Hong Kong <laughs> was being accused of being this, this guy Adsitz. And any man with gold teeth had, had a problem. Adsitz was eventually traced up to Shanghai and then on to Chifu, where he was arrested by a Shanghai Municipal Police Constable, Billy Ballou. Adsitz was a had been a US Marine and he was a prize fighter. Billy Ballou was also a prize fighter and when the two men met, 
there was quite a showdown. Both constable and prisoner were quite badly injured in that, but Adsit was put into the British consul lockup, from which he promptly escaped by way of a ventilation opening, but he was recaptured quite quickly. Then the Americans got involved, because of course this man was a US citizen and he couldn't be extradited from a treaty port without a ruling from an American magistrate. So he was put on a US warship and eventually taken down to Manila, where he appeared in front of the magistrate and was duly given into charge of Edmund O'Sullivan and Constable Perkins, who was yet another prize fighter. And Perkins had actually fought and beaten Adsits in a match quite recently. So the story went on and on. They had a 72-hour journey, ship journey, from Manila up to Hong Kong, and it was said that the two policemen didn't dare go to sleep. They couldn't, they couldn't for a moment, rest their guard. Adsitz was brought to trial and found guilty and given the death sentence. Before he was hanged, he did actually confess to it. And, and there's, there's a rather nice little cutting snippet I found in the, the papers that says, in his confession that he made, he also confessed to a life of such debauchery that is not considered suitable for the public interest to reveal it. <laughs> <laughs> the public you know, didn't, didn't, weren't going to leave the story there, though, and in fact, a month later, his clothes were stolen from the US consulate. <laughs> you know, the, you know, the hanged man's clothes were stolen. So that's the story of uh, The Demise of Gertrude Dayton, nightclub singer, by William Adsitz, former US Marine and prize fighter. So you had uh, your grandfather, your great-uncle, also their cousin Edmund, who we've just been hearing about, who was a, pretty much a detective, so investigating these murders. But uh, as well as the regular-type Hong Kong police force, you also had a, a dockyard police. Yeah, the dockyard police was a bit of a surprise to me because that that's came in. That's my very first man from Newmarket, um, the man who'd tried to, tried to catch the gold rush and was too late. He landed in Hong Kong in 1864 and was soon recruited to the dockyard police force. Now, this is a police force that just has managed to evade almost all mention in the records. It's a group of, at first, about 12 constables, all European constables, with a couple of sergeants and one inspector, who were a civilian force but under the authority of the Admiralty and guarded the very valuable and very important naval dockyard which was then where Tamar is, you know, the whole Tamar area. What was the dockyard police force? It was a small force of Europeans, mainly British men, who were there to guard all the working rooms, the victualling yard, which was where the Navy would keep all the supplies, all the sheds and the work sheds, and where the ships were repaired and where instruments and machinery was made and created for British Navy. There's also a coal store. There's a coal store over in Kowloon, but there's there's a lot of very valuable material to protect. It's a very, very busy place because, of course, there's a huge Chinese, predominantly, workforce coming in and out of the workshops. There's also a large mainly Portuguese workforce coming in as clerks and writers in the offices of the dockyard. So this area, this place, which is down where Tamar is, occupied quite a considerable site and has many buildings of different types. It also, slightly bizarrely, has tennis courts and flower beds and things like this. 
Um, it also has a great big shear leg. A shear leg is one of the sort of lifting equipment to haul large engine parts off steamships so they can be repaired. So this small police force have basically to guard this area and they take beats around it, reporting to their sergeants and their inspector. So probably 12 constables, two sergeants, one inspector. Later on, in, say, 1875, 1880, we see it expand to about 24 constables, three or four sergeants, but still just the one inspector. With both the dockyard police and those early police, what were conditions like? Uh, the conditions were pretty poor. I mean, I'm thinking about the dockyard men. It's difficult to find, but they seem to have rather temporary accommodation. They have a, a, a barrack room of some description. The inspector basically lives in a room, so he and his family in... Inspector Lysett, um, who's my man, as it were, uh, who was the inspector there from 1870 right the way through to 1893 or so, lived for quite a considerable period of that time in the one room with his growing family of, sort of six, seven, eight children. And the, the sort of things they'd be dealing with were very often just sort of quite petty thefts, thefts of eight and a half ounces of copper wire or theft of two pounds of metal flattened into the shoe of a man and his strange gait is noticed by, <laughs> by the constable <laughs> who has a little investigation of his shoes. What we do get more is um, offences by the dockyard police themselves. So there's uh, quite a nasty case of wife battering um, by one constable who did get dismissed for, for this and similar cases. <laughs> We've been talking murders... But in fact, crime could cover the whole spectrum. It could indeed. And, <laughs> and just to tell you one, one last one, because I think, I think we've had enough gore. My grandfather himself, um, in 1918, so this is after, after all the sort of horrendous Gresson Street events. And the so this is sort of the gangland yeah. uh, in, which, in which your great-uncle died. Yes, that's right. Yeah. After, after that murder and then after the huge fire at the race course um, in, in Happy Valley that claimed 600 lives and more, then a case that made the papers and caught the imagination of the public towards the end of that year was the case of Wonkin Mann. Wonkin Mann was a young lady of 16 years old, a very respectable, nicely spoken, polite young lady who was brought to court by Inspector O'Sullivan because she had been repeatedly taking stationery, apparently on account for the Winlook shop. Stationery, so we're talking about pens, nibs, ink, pencils, quantities of pencils, quantities of writing paper, ink stands, uh, blotting paper, you name it. She, she was amassing it um, and signing for it. And then she'd come back the day later and um, need another quantity of paper. And eventually the stationers became a little bit suspicious. Stationers down on Queen's Road Central, this is. A little bit suspicious of this and telephoned. Shops now start to have telephones and a telephone call is made. And um, yes, whilst they know this late young lady, they know she doesn't work for the shop and know she's no business with all this stationery. She squirreled it all away and her story, in fact, was that she was 
taking it back to her husband in Macau so that he would be paying for it. It's all right. He, he was going to pay for it, but then they'd be able to start a stationery shop together. <laughs> Certainly the magistrate and, and the inspector really didn't know what to make of this young lady and decided eventually not to charge her. This was after you know, um, a Sunday school lady, a missionary in other words, a Miss Smith, I believe, had come along and answered for her character and said, yes, she was a very respectable young girl. Well, I can understand the fascination with stationery. I have it myself. <laughs> Absolutely, this is why it so attracted me. I, th- I thought, you know, this, is, this has gone down to his granddaughter somehow or other. He's, he's picked this up and transferred it to me. <laughs> Patricia O'Sullivan there, the author of Policing Hong Kong and Irish History, Irishman in the Hong Kong Police Force 1864 until 1950. Thanks to my colleague Tom McAlinden for lending his voice to the newspaper reports. Next week, I head with Patricia to Crescent Street in Wan Chai to mark 100 years since the robbery gang fatal shootout that became known as the Crescent Street Affray. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>